Hi, and welcome. I'm Diane Hullett, and this is the Best Life, Best Death podcast. Today, you're listening to part two of my conversation with Sam Trad, the National Director of Care Advocacy at Compassion and Choices. Compassion and Choices is the successor to the Hemlock Society and Compassion in Dying Federation, which merged together in 2007. Compassion and Choices does an incredible amount of advocacy work in our country for medical aid in dying, but there's so much more than that. I encourage you to go to their website and check it out because they just have a number of important tools you can access, including what they call the decoder. There's a dementia decoder, a cancer decoder, and a long-term illness decoder. All of these are really powerful tools that you can find on their website, compassionandchoices.org. Here goes part two with Sam. So I'm back with Sam Trad, and she's working with Compassion and Choices. And I'm really excited for part two of our conversation. Hi, Sam. Hi. So I thought I'd start us off with a quote from our um, colleague, Kim Mooney, who I interviewed back in January. And Kim said, you know, changing medical practices and law in America takes a lot of thought, action, and education starting with skillfully introducing legislation to knowing how to help an idea get traction to understanding how to educate all the audiences that are impacted. It is a long, complex road. So we talked a little at the end of part one about like how this measure got passed in Colorado by a ballot action and that voters overwhelmingly approved it. Let's talk a little more about how these laws have come to be in some other states. Um, I love your kind of call to action, like, hey, Compassion and Choices needs volunteers. You know, let us know how you want to get involved. That's, I think, wonderful. So tell us a little bit more of state by state. Sure. I think one of the most interesting states is Montana. So Montana's law passed because of a state Supreme Court decision, which you can also read about on our website. Um, The state Supreme Court in Montana basically said that you can't prevent a doctor from helping their patient to peacefully end their suffering. And every year, the state legislature in Montana has tried to reverse that, and they've never quite made it. Um, We've worked really hard to preserve that law in Montana, but it is getting harder and harder each year. And I don't know if we're going to be successful this year, but we are trying Um, So if you live in Montana, please sign up and help us to protect the law in Montana. Uh, In every other state, we've passed it through the state legislature. And in some states, it's taken decades. In Hawaii, it took us 20 years to pass. In California, we had the incredible help of Brittany Menard, who you may have heard of. Brittany was a 29-year-old woman who had uh, brain cancer, glioblastoma, and she made a video that went viral. Uh, about how she didn't want to have to suffer at the end of her life. And she was living in California and she actually moved to Oregon to access their law. And she was really upset that she had to uproot her entire life already. You know, she's first, she had tried everything she could to extend her life. And when it was clear there, there were no other treatment options that made sense for her, she moved to Oregon and her husband, Dan Diaz continues to advocate on behalf of Brittany Um, And Brittany really helped us in California because, again, those personal stories are so moving. It helps people understand in a far stronger way than data and numbers does how important it is to have the full range of end of life options. And Brittany was just incredible. She was so powerful in telling her story. So powerful that, you know, one of the first books I read on this subject was This is Assisted Dying a doctor's story of empowering patients at the end of life, Stephanie Green. She's a Mm -hmm. Canadian physician. 
And mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting that Canada has a very different approach to the than the U.S. So I, we can get into that or not. But sure. one of the things I loved about this book, Stephanie's a beautiful writer, or I guess I should call her Dr. Green, is a beautiful writer. And she tells these very personal anecdotes of her patients, her first patient, some of her other patients, what they were going through that led them to come to this decision. And some of them come to the decision to do the deed, do the drink the potion and have medical aid in dying. And actually in Canada, it's possible for her to also do an IV and inject the medicine. So that was really interesting to me. And then she also talked about a couple of patients who hoped to qualify and no longer qualified for various reasons and the pain of those situations. But there was something about that, hearing those really moving specific anecdotes of people that I found really moving in the book. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Well, a couple things on that note. Um, I, I also would encourage everybody who's listening to talk to your primary care provider, your doctors about what you want at the end of life. A lot of doctors, you know, they, they see death as failure. And of course it isn't because we are all going to die. Death is not failure. Having a bad death is the real failure, but it is so hard, especially I think for older doctors to really understand why it's so important for people to have this option. So similar to legislators, but for very different reasons, it's, it's important to share your personal story with your doctor to help them understand why it's important for you to have this option and also to educate them. A lot of doctors don't understand how our law here in America works. And, um, in America, you have to actually ingest the medication yourself. There's no assistance, um, and in fact, calling it, cause some people call it suicide, but that can be really offensive to some people. And it's not, you know, the people who, who, to qualify for medical aid and dying, who want medical aid and dying, they do not want to die. They just don't want to suffer at the end of their life. Um, so I encourage everyone. I've had that conversation with my doctor and he was blown away. He, you know, I told him I'm not sick, but if I were, would you support me in this option? I live in California. It's legal here. This is how it works. And again, we have resources on our plethora of a website (laughs) that you can take to your doctor to help them understand, you know, what the law is. And he said, yes, he would support me because for me, it's a values thing too. I didn't, I didn't want my primary care doctor to be someone who thought they knew better than me about my end of life. And that's just my personal preference. Oh, I really want to underscore this. So you brought this to your doctor to actually find out if your doctor was a good fit for you. And I think it's really important to underscore what you just said on the Compassion and Choices website, there are resources that will help you to talk to your doctor or family members about this. And I think, you know, it's so complicated because the website is such a beautiful, complex website. And I really think I encourage people to take some time with it because like, for example, the dementia pieces that we were talking about in part one, I kind of had to drill down into that to find those helpful values, prioritizing um, quiz kind of things. But when I found them, it was so eye-opening. I was like, what a resource to share with people. So take your time with this Compassion and Choices website, because I think there are enormous resources there that will help you have conversations with professionals and with family members and and think for yourself too. Yeah. And, you know, I, I want to talk too about um, euthanasia and because we get asked all the time, well, why can't we have medical aid in dying for people with dementia? Why can't we have it? So 
there's a couple reasons. One is it's really a safeguard in the law to make sure that the person's mentally capable of making medical decisions. You know, they, they need to understand what they're advocating for when they're advocating for, for it at the time. And the other part is, you know, it is so hard to pass these laws the way they're written for people. You know, like I said, there's 13 steps. You have to be mentally capable of making decisions. You have to be able to self-ingest the medication. Um, you have to be terminally ill with six months or less to live. New York has not passed this yet. We have a huge campaign in New York that we have been waging. We have the best campaign director and, you know, even in New York, it is so hard for them to pass this really very conservative law for end of life. So there, it's, it's just, you know, I, I don't see anything outside of what we have right now passing in any state in America anytime soon. But also, you know, this hasn't been tested and it is a really important safeguard that the person's able to advocate for what they want at the end of life. Now, again, there's a lot of other compassionate end-of-life options for people with dementia. Um, something we don't talk about a lot is stopping eating and drinking. Um, there's voluntary stopping eating and drinking, and then you can also put it in your advanced healthcare directive if you have, you know, you're, you get to a certain point at the end of your life that you can choose. And, you know, it sounds, when, when somebody stops eating, it feels like it's compassionate to force feed them, right? It feels like it's compassionate to force someone to drink because how could you, you know, let them suffer? But really your body is naturally shutting down. And again, if you document this, you let your healthcare proxy, your loved ones know, it can be a really beautiful, compassionate end of life options. You want to make sure you have palliative care that your pain is, is taken care of but you can stop eating and drinking. My grandmother did this and it really wasn't until I had this job that my parents said, Oh, I guess that was like an end of life option that she chose. You know, it wasn't, the, she, it was, she, she was Lebanese. Right. And this is something else we can talk about too. We do a lot of diversity, equity, and inclusion work because, you know, for some people it's easy to be advocating for themselves and they, their doctors listen to them, but there's also historical uh, disparity at end of life in um, terrible racism that's happened. And so, you know, it's, it different for every culture, right? Not everyone can navigate end of life the same way. And so we work really hard to make sure we have tools for everyone to help empower them. You know, for some people, they feel much more comfortable talking to their pastor or a chaplain as opposed to a doctor about what they want at the end of life. And so we work with chaplains and religious leaders, rabbis, you know, so that they understand what end of life options are and they can help their communi communities navigate end of life instead of relying just on a healthcare system or one way of doing it. You know, there's really so many dimensions of looking at end of life and making sure people are empowered to make those decisions. Um, so it's a lot, we do a lot. <laughs> so, I mean, part of this, so for someone who's listening, part of this is like, who's your team? Who's your healthcare team? If you are disempowered within that healthcare team, how can you find advocates and allies to help you advocate for yourself? Right. Yeah. Maybe you need to bring a friend to the appointment because you find the doctor intimidating or something. Yeah. How do we not make blanket statements about all of cultural, all of society, knowing that every family is so individual and different pockets relate to these topics in different ways? And 
how do we be proactive about this? Which I think is what you and I are bottom line both saying is how do you have some level of conversation and reflection within yourself that says, if I think about these things, if I educate myself, if I talk to my spouse or friends or children or family, it will make this go a little more smoothly. Um, mm. That's, I think, the bottom line. And what I love about compassion and choices, is I feel like you're you're essentially giving people tools to help support those conversations. That's like your job. And then, and, and that's almost like curriculum and education. And then the other job of the organization is this big picture, how at the broader macro levels do you pass laws that make it possible for people to have choice? It's it's such an interesting, um, it's kind of interesting that both of those things stayed within one organization because they almost could be two different organizations, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we do, we, we have a sister organization, Compassion and Traces Action Network that really does more of the legislative work, but again, it's a sister organization. So we, we work in tandem, <laughs> Right. but yeah, it's really, it's, it's interesting. And, um, also working with doctors, nurses, and social workers, we do a lot of continuing education credits, um, and peer to peer education. So doctors talking to doctors about cultural competency, you know, how do you really hear your patient? no matter who they are and, you know, respect them and meet them where they're at and doing that also with nurses and social workers. But again, peer to peer doctors talking to doctors, nurses, talking to nurses, having continuing education credits for it. Um, it, there it's, there's, it's a lot of work, but it's, it's great. It's exciting. And it has to, I think it has to be this way. You know, it can't just be public education or just working with doctors or just legislators. I mean, all of it, it, it all is so important for systems change and helping change the system, change the culture. Our goal really is to change the culture, to feel more comfortable in talking about death and making sure people have the death they want. Um, and we compare it to the birth birthing movement a lot, actually, you know, for a while there, a woman would get strapped down. Her partner couldn't be in the room with her. You know, you had to do what the doctor said. And now fast forward to today where, you know, people have 20 page birthing plans, right? right. You can compare it to a 20 page advanced healthcare directive. And just like in birth, it doesn't always go the way you, you think it's going to go, right? So right. having but somebody you, advocate for you. Right. But you can make some plans. You can lay them out so that you have explained what, how you hope it will go, even though you have to be a little flexible in the moment, right? Yeah. Yeah. And about, I love the way you're talking about, like you're, you're, you're talking like at the biggest, broadest level systems change. How do we improve our experience of death as a society and a culture? Mm -hmm. And then you're also talking like at the personal level, how does one individual articulate their needs and express those needs and share those needs and hopefully get them met to some degree? Yeah. So yeah. that's a pretty broad range and everything in between, right? Which is everyone who interfaces with that patient. Yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite volunteer projects we do is um, we train volunteers to, to do outreach to hospices and we work with them to find hospices in their region. So they, they could even interview the hospices for themselves or their loved ones, or they can do it as a compassion and choices volunteer. But we have a long form of questions that, you know, we had so many people give input to. So asking them all kinds of questions, you know, if I wanted to, to stop eating and drinking because I'm at this stage of dementia, what will you do to support me? Because even hospices, some hospices are like, well, we don't do that. Or what do you mean? 
of course we're going to force you to eat and drink. You know, even hospices in some places don't understand that that can be a compassionate end of life option. So instead of demonizing them or something, you know, really trying to compassionately work together so that it, you know, it's like a win-win situation so that everybody feels good about the end of life experience and that it's, and that people understand what hospice they're enrolling in. I, that's so great to hear. Tell me more about, we were talking at the beginning about sort of compassionate options at end of life, right? So we've talked about medical aid and dying, which is really powerful and limited. And we yeah. talked about, uh, what was the other big one you brought up right then? Um, refusing treatment. Refusing treatment and voluntary stopping of eating and drinking. What are the others that pop to your mind? Yeah. Palliative sedation is one. Um, it's not everybody's cup of tea. You know, it's really just um, making sure someone is really comfortable so that they're sedated until they peacefully pass away. Um, and that's legal across the country. Voluntary stopping eating and drinking is a big one. And then stopping eating and drinking um, and ending treatment. So for example, if you have a pacemaker, you can turn the pacemaker off. That can be your end of life option. Right. Interesting. And this is what on the website, you've got places where people can think through all of these various options. Yeah. Take so, your time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Take your time is right. Cause this is, this is not simple. I remember the first time I kind of did a broad, you know, estate planning will kind of thing and had to fill out a, a form. I, I got really stumped, you know, on the sort of question of like, and if you're in, you know, disabled in this way in a car accident, and this is the option, and do you want this or this? I just kind of stared at it, and I, I had a hard time just even answering the question because it was so unthinkable on some level. Maybe yeah. that's part of what happens for us—we bump up against the unthinkable. And it was actually my husband who kind of helped us both move forward with it because he was able to say. I really don't want pain. Like I'm really clear that pain is not what I want. So anytime there's an option to medicate for pain, that is my choice. And then that kind of helped us weave our way into these complicated conversations and complicated options. Yeah. Yeah. And you change over time. You know, what you want is probably going to change over time, depending on your health, where, where you are in life. Um, I know for me, like I, I really don't like taking medication. I do it, you know, I do, but I don't know, like I, I'm at a point in my life, I'm 40. I, I want every life-saving option available if something happens to me. Now, if I got some horrible cancer, which I really hope never happens to anyone, but you know, let's say that happens, then my advanced healthcare directive may change. You know, I may not want the reality of whatever the treatment is. Um, another really great tool we have on our, our website is we have different decoders. We have a dementia decoder, a cancer decoder, and a serious illness decoder. And what these decoders do is they help you think through questions for your doctor's visit. Um, my mother-in-law had uh, breast cancer a few years ago, and she loved the decoder because it helped her think of questions she never would have thought to ask. And, you know, a lot of doctors, care teams, they're so busy. They come in, they say, this is what you have. This is what I think you should do. Well, is that an informed decision? Maybe not, right? So, you know, going through what your values are, what kinds of questions you should ask so that you can make a truly informed decision about your treatment options and the reality of it. You know, for example, CPR, right? For the longest time, I thought CPR was like this cool, sexy thing. You know, it happens on Baywatch. It's real easy. No, 
this is not the reality of CPR. Many people don't survive from it. Ribs are broken. You know, if you like, if you have asthma or some sort of underlying illness, you may not actually want CPR once you understand what recovery from that is like, and even what the odds of recovery are like, because that could be a really scary way to die, depending on what stage you are, are in life. And, you know, whether or not you want to go through that, should you actually survive it? So again, informed decision-making and the reality of what all of your options are. I love this. I love knowing about these, dec- they're called the decoders. Yes. Yeah. Decoders. decoders. Okay. Yeah, three decoders. Out on the websites. Three. Cancer, dementia. Cancer, dementia, and serious illness. You know, the other thing I was really struck by on your dementia page was this piece that said, oh, I'm going to forget the statistic, but it was like 60% of people with dementia have are being medicated in the wrong way. Like the medications they're taking are not helping in any way. And I thought, oh boy, is that a reality? Yeah. I mean, it's also, you, you can also think of it as another kind of strange end of life option because you you start taking medication for one thing and then another. And by the time you reach a certain age, you're probably taking a whole lot of medications that you maybe don't need. And, you know, depending on how they interact with each other, it can be really detrimental. And if you get to a stage of dementia where you really are ready to go, you know, there's no sense in taking these medications anymore. Again, most people just want to make sure their pain is managed so that they're comfortable. Right. So how do we knock the medications out when it's time to do so? How do you do so wisely? I also think that thing, think that thing happens where there's fragmented care. So you see one specialist for one thing who prescribes something and you see someone else for another thing who prescribes something and the parts aren't always working together to form a, a, a more healthy whole, whatever that healthy means. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to your pharmacist about all the medications you're taking, you know? Yeah. And how they interact. How, how long have you been with compassion and choices? For about five years now. Interesting. And what do you like best about the work? Oh, I, I love working with people. I I love that I get to do a job that makes a positive difference in people's lives, you know, and most people I'll never meet, but just to me, it's really important that I, I work for something that I care passionately about. And end of life is something I've always kind of weirdly cared a lot about. And I just, I believe how we die really matters. And thinking about death, I think can help improve our quality of life. You know, I, I don't stress about little things like I used to before this job, because I, you know, it doesn't matter when I get to my deathbed, which I think about all the time now, it really doesn't matter. You know, I, I kind of joke too. I have like, I've gained like 20 pounds since I started that I'll probably never lose. Cause it's also like, well, you know, when I'm on my deathbed, I'll be like, yeah, I'm really glad I had ice cream with my kids. You know? <laughs> I ate the donuts. It's okay. It's going right? to be fine. Yeah. 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 You enjoy life too. It is funny how people think that working with, you know, in this end of life or mortality field must be morbid in some way. And I actually feel the same. I feel like it's just brought me so alive because I feel so much perspective. And when there's an accident I hear of, or somebody dies suddenly of a heart, you know, a young person I know just died of a heart anomaly that was undiagnosed. And you feel that poignancy and that tragedy and you think, well, it could have been me. Therefore, am I really going to stress about, you know, some little thing that I'm fussing about in my head? Um, so there is great perspective that comes that then does bring a lot more simplicity and joy in how I'm living my day-to-day life. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I think Compassion and Choices is just such an amazing advocacy place and not only advocacy, but also education. And I didn't know as much about it as I should have before today. So I'm really happy that we talked. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on and thank you for your podcast. I'm really grateful for it. It's these conversations are so important. I think it's a great way to um, easily listen to something that's sort of 20 or 25 minutes. And if it's like women like you and me, we talk really, really fast. So there's a lot to get in. (laughs) To me, it's an easy way to take in conversation and just kind of get the wheels turning about what we might be able to do. So I think we've left people with some interesting action steps. I think going on the Compassion and Choices website, checking out some of these decoders, either for yourself or for a loved one. I think that thinking about being a volunteer, if you're in a state that has a medical aid and dying kind of process that you might be interested in being a part of, power to you. And if that is not your cup of tea because of your faith or your belief system, I totally respect that too, because I think it's a very personal choice. And I think it comes down to, do we have choice? You know, is a, is a limited number of people controlling the choice of everyone? Yeah. Yeah. And we, we are not trying to push medical aid and dying on anyone. You know, we have volunteers who don't care about medical aid and dying. They care about our dementia work. So they volunteer with us for that. Um, you know, we're, we have a big tent where we want everyone to be able to have the end of life. They want whatever they want. I love it. Well, thanks so much, Sam, for joining me. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to the best life, best death podcast with Sam trad. She works with Compassion and Choices, and you can find out more about their work at CompassionandChoices.org. You can find out about the work I do at BestLifeBestDeath.com. Thanks so much for joining us. Mm -hmm.